0: Everyone, it's been such a long time since we last updated the podcast. We know, we know. Don't be upset with us. We got all your emails. We're still here. If you follow me on Twitter, you definitely know I'm still around because I'm super active there. But if you don't, here are a few things that we've been working on. First, did you know that we have a live cast series of interviews with entrepreneurs and investors in China Tech? Yeah. It's called TBC Livecast. That's China Livecast. Search for it. We're actually already a dozen episodes in. It's a really different format from this show, and it's mostly recorded live in front of our new paid community, TechBuzzChina Insider. That's right. If you are really into China tech, we've been hanging out on a Discord server and in a forum where myself and the rest of the community discuss everything we know about China tech, we also have regular members-only events, like just the other day, another member and I built up a financial model for ByteDance, and we shared it with everyone. And a few weeks ago, Big One Lab, China's leading alternative data provider that you might have heard before on this show, shared with us their latest insights on Alibaba, which was super enlightening, to say the least. If that's up your alley, take our insider quiz at www.techbuzzchina.com insider, or just fill out an application, or find another insider member to refer you. It's just $25 a month, but I think you'll find a lot more value than that. Finally, and this is the newest, newest thing, the last thing that we're working on, well, I'm opening up select opportunities for investment in great private companies inspired by China Tech, and it's gonna be open for accredited investors only. So if that describes you and you want more details on that, email me at ray at techbuschina.com. That's R-U-I at techbuzzchina.com. In short, the podcast will still go on, just at a slower, hopefully not this slow, cadence than before. Because we're working on all these other super exciting projects. We're getting deeper into China tech, and I think that only makes our analysis better. So definitely subscribe to our livecast, Joining our insider community, or sign up for our investment syndicate. Thanks for all your support. The president's key economic team goes to China.
1: Uh, after whole night thinking, I say I still want to do it.
0: Tech Buzz China by Pandaily, powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. We're a podcast focused on giving you a peek into what's buzzing within the tech community in China. We uncover and contextualize unique insights, perspectives, and takeaways on headline tech news that don't always make it into English language coverage, so you can be smarter about the world of China tech. Tech Buzz China is a part of pandaily.com, an English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. I'm your creator and host, Ray Ma. As always, if you enjoy listening to us, give us a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate it so much. Gary, it is so great to have you here with us today. Now, a lot of our listeners know about the South China Morning Post, but I don't think most of us know much about your personal background. So why don't we go with convention here and you start us off with a self-introduction.
1: Thanks for having me on the podcast, Ray. It's great to be here.
0: For me, my background
1: is, I guess, a little bit different than what you would find in quote-unquote traditional news executive ranks. I spent my entire career going through a succession of big tech companies and also A couple of small ones. I started my tech career at Google. I worked for AOL, a division called Patch, which is infamous. I also spent some time at Spotify. I was part of the original team of Spotify US. We were very small when I joined, I think we were less than 30 people. And the last thing I did in the US before I moved to Hong Kong for this job was I was CEO of Dig, D I G G, that I hope many of your listeners still remember. It was a once great and very important content aggregator. And somehow this 118-year-old newspaper found me in New York and said, hey, we have new plans for reinvention, right? And I found myself in Hong Kong doing this for the last five years.
0: Well, those are all super relevant experiences. So thank you for sharing. Anyway, now you're at the South China Morning Post, and a couple of years ago, you started this China internet report. It was actually started with a former colleague of mine named Edith Ye-
1: Yes, so Edith started it five years ago. And the first year, Edith did it by herself. She just felt compelled to put together a slide deck that explained the massive growth of the Chinese internet. And because it was so misunderstood and, and people still at that point five years ago thought that China Tech was all about copying everything else that had been invented in the United States or Europe. And it was, of course, by then already very different than that. Ever since then, so for the last four years, including this one, the South China Morning Post has produced the China Internet Report. And we've been very proud of how it's advanced over the last several years.
0: Yeah, I really watched it grow over the years. Congratulations. It's quite extensive now. And this year was the first year that I was one of the three experts you guys quoted in this report. Actually, all of us are women, and one of the other ones is my friend, Jenju Scott. Anyway, I gotta see firsthand how much work you guys put into it. So, everyone, I know we're gonna go through a lot of the report today, but you should definitely download it anyway. It's at sc.mp c-i-r 2021. I'm gonna say that again, but it's sc.mp Slash CIR, that stands for China Internet Report, dash 2021. It's free and it's really worth the read. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that 2020 was a great year for China VC, just like in the US. Actually, it was exceptional, especially compared to 2019. So what do you think happened here, Gary?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think 2020 was a great year for China VC. 2019 was a big surprise for the world when viewing Chinese internet investment because it was a huge down year. It was really when the U.S.-China trade war reached its apex, where the war of words between Beijing and Washington was actually roiling global markets, so it affected the the domestic investment marketplace as well. And the second reason uh, was because 2019 was when everyone realized, goodness, the Chinese domestic market is really well penetrated. And there are just too many competitors. It's actually really difficult now to cut in because growth had slowed down and adding new users to the internet and uh, new mobile phone penetration. So people started looking outside, but then COVID happened. And COVID showed that actually the Chinese domestic market still had a huge amount of headroom. And over the course of the last year, the volume of media consumption, of just domestic goods consumption, right? people started realizing, okay, actually in the right condition, there's still going to be a lot of opportunity within China. And the money started flowing into to startups again. Another reason is because at, towards the end of the year in 2020, people started realizing that Chinese companies were going to be facing very real headwinds for listing for public offerings. It's not just listing in Western exchanges anymore, but even in Shanghai, Sens and Hong Kong, there were going to be additional restrictions and regulations surrounding public listings in general.
0: And that sounds about right, actually. And I especially agree with you on the second point regarding domestic growth. Pinduoduo just really unlocked everyone's imagination regarding rural China. The slogan in the Chinese ecosystem these days is that you have two strategies, right? You either high, as in you go sell abroad, or you attack the Shachen market, as in you go sell to rural China, or what you guys translate in the report as the sinking markets. Now, China might be slowing down, but rural China's not. It's actually growing quite quickly. And I think especially with the country now going full on into common prosperity mode as a new goal, there will definitely be regulatory tailwinds encouraging that even more. Okay, enough of a detour. Back to the VC data in 2020. Your report actually shows that the funding was up 24% from 2019 to 2020, but the number of deals went down 11%. So that means more mega deals got done in China. Deals like Xingsheng, the community group buying startup, which raised over $3.6 billion across four rounds last year, or Yuanfudao, the edtech startup that raised $3.5 billion over four rounds. What I also found really interesting in the report is that you guys laid out investments by the largest Chinese tech companies versus US ones. And I certainly didn't realize that, I mean, we all know Tencent invested in a lot of companies last year. They invested in 168, but I did not know that Google also invested in 155 companies. It's not just Google either. The next few are pretty comparable as well. Xiaomi invested in 70 startups, but Microsoft did 50. And Alibaba invested in 44, but Amazon did 28. So they're not that far apart. Although I'm guessing that if we dig into the Chinese deals, the Chinese internet companies are probably leading more rounds and getting greater ownership than their Western counterparts. And they're probably investing in later stages, but I don't have the data for that. So maybe someone else can look into it. Anyway, let's go back to the report. Gary, you guys picked five trends, tightening regulations, bumpy roads for IPOs, overseas expansion plans, shifting demographics. And finally, you have this very specific section focused on growing private domain traffic, which is most relevant to e-commerce, but actually pretty important to understand for all of consumer internet. So let's go through them in order and talk about the tightening regulations. It's really dominated the conversation. I'm sure it's driven SDMP a lot of traffic, certainly for myself in the last year, it's given me a lot of work. A lot of it, just me explaining to organizations, funds, investors, what exactly is going on in China as it pertains to regulation. Now, I've actually done a lot of speaking on the subject, so I could theoretically do the next section, but I've actually heard you talk about this on the London Tech Week panel we just did together. I think you did a fantastic job there. Could I just get you to repeat that? whole thing again and tell our audience here, what is going on with all the tech regulations in China?
1: Sure. The regulation or the regulatory environment in China is changing and is changing extremely fast. We have broken it down into really four different key areas of Titan regulation that is really impacting the market. Antitrust, fintech, data, and then finally crypto. Let me walk through each of these one by one. For antitrust, what we're seeing is that the Chinese government is starting to come down on these huge tech giants that have been created over the last several decades. Now, in China, in some sectors, the market concentration of these tech giants is even higher than that in the United States, which is already very high. For instance, the top three players in China's e-commerce sector command 84% of the marketplace. In the US, it's only 51%. In food delivery, 98% 98% of the marketplace belongs to just two players. In right-hailing, it's also only two players that combine for 92% of the marketplace, where DD is actually the vast majority. So big tech's market power is huge in China. And that market power has led over the last years to monopolistic behaviors. And most of that monopolistic behavior has happened in what we describe as heavily walled gardens. As an example, in WeChat, you can't send Taobao leaks, right? So it's a very separate ecosystem. Now, conversely for Taobao, Taobao also limits vendors and people who are trying to sell their goods are oftentimes not allowed to sell on Pinduoduo or any of the other e-commerce competitors out there or JD. And this is a scheme known as picking one from two. So the tightening of antitrust regulations is China's attempt to try and stamp out these monopolistic behaviors. Now, fintech companies um, have just really taken over the entire environment over the course of the last several years. They use big data and algorithms to facilitate borrowing by consumers and small businesses. But the way that they do it is that these fintech companies actually contribute only a tiny fraction of the borrowed. Most of the funding actually comes from banks, traditional banks. This kind of lending has facilitated fintech companies to grow and it has actually ballooned this borrowing marketplace to 500 billion US dollars in just five years. And so the issue is that the government believes that these fintech companies are fueling excessive borrowing and overspending while they're actually bearing very little of the liabilities. And so the fintech regulation is trying to bring fintech companies closer towards the same regulations as banks. Number three, On data, China previously lagged both the EU and the U.S. on data protection laws. Um, And they are going through massive, extremely fast catch-up because there is a significant public concern on rising privacy violations. um, And the authorities are growing extremely uneasy about the amount of data that these tech firms actually have. So the legislation has to be accelerated. In 2017, there was a cybersecurity law introduced for the first time. And this year, China passed the data security law in June, and then recently passed the personal information protection law. Now, all of these are really strict. The personal information protection law is closely modeled after Europe's GDPR, which we all know very well and have all had to react to, right, over the last several years. But the Chinese version of it actually provides stronger protection for individual and less protection for corporates over state organs. Now, ultimately, the increased regulation by the Chinese government around data is aimed at protecting internet users. And then lastly, for crypto. Now, Bitcoin mining, even though China for many years now has been restricting kind of ownership and trading of crypto, Bitcoin mining has not really been touched. And mining is still absolutely huge. At its peak in 2019, China was responsible for three quarters of all mining activities in the world. And even as recently as earlier this year, China was still responsible for 65% of all of the world's Bitcoins mined. The issue for China is really twofold. One is the fact that Beijing wants to get the environmental impact of all Chinese industries under control and get to carbon neutrality by 2060. The other reason is because China is very concerned about financial security and especially about what they refer to as quote-unquote graft. It's this umbrella catch-all for corruption. China is scared of not being able to control capital outflows. Those are the four key areas of regulation that we're paying attention to, and they have really impacted global markets.
0: Thanks for giving that breakdown. I personally have a slightly different way of bucketing it, which I'll just share with everyone because maybe you find it more helpful, maybe less helpful, I don't know. But the three buckets I use are... One, there are regulations that are, you know, Chinese idiosyncratic. So things like decimating the after-school tutoring sector or limiting minors video game planning, those are all things that are kind of specific to solving issues within China. So you really need to understand how China works in order to predict them. But the other two buckets I think are much more clear, even if you didn't truly understand China. So the second bucket I would put in Uh, regulations where China's effectively catching up to the world, like when they're forcing internet giants like Tencent and Alibaba to open up their walled gardens or the monopolistic practices of forcing merchants to choose one. So that goes in the second bucket. The third bucket is uh, this new thing where there are regulations and emerging technologies where China's actually trying to get ahead of everyone else. It's not quite setting standards because you know, that's very specific, but it's kind of similar in the sense that it's about being proactive and setting the terms of the conversation about these new technologies. But you do bring up one thing that I often forget to mention entirely, and that is the banning of cryptocurrency, which I guess is Chinese idiosyncratic, but basically started off as this kind of partial ban. You know, you could still get around it, but more and more, it's really starting to look like it's for all intents and purposes, a real ban. China just seems uncomfortable with the idea of a non-sovereign cryptocurrency, right? Now, to jump on the bandwagon a little bit here, because that's literally what everyone around me is talking about all the time, let's talk a little bit about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. You guys don't have this in your report, I'm personally very curious, what do you think about their future in China?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. This is where things get complicated, right? Because ostensibly, crypto is blocked, banned completely now that mining is gone. But blockchain technologies, applications of blockchain technologies are not only alive in China, but actually investment in blockchain technologies is being encouraged. And NFT straddles these two worlds, right? Because NFTs are token. They are seen in China today as just an application of blockchain technology that makes the distribution, the monetization, the valuation, whatever it is, the preservation of digital assets more efficient. I guess China still sees so much potential in NFT that big companies like Alibaba and Tencent are both investing in NFT trading platforms, Alibaba in June and uh, Tencent in just August. Tencent is also actually experimenting with NFT music, right? So turning kind of their music assets through Tencent music into NFTs. Remember, China is actually investing a lot, not just institutional and private investors, but the state is investing a lot in other blockchain technologies to track the supply chain, to improve transparency in regulation, and also in their own digital currency. And again, I think that people conflate multiple things. The Digital yuan is not meant to replace Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. It's for a very specific domestic use case. But not only is the state, but provinces are increasingly investing in blockchain applications. So Let's see where the lines are drawn. They're, they're constantly changing.
0: Yeah, I was actually researching this for our TechBuzz Insider community a few weeks back. And what I can say is that most of the experiments that are taking place are on corporate blockchains, like you said. So not on the public blockchains that everyone's heard about, like Bitcoin or Ethereum. So it's not linked to cryptocurrencies. In fact, the transactions are taking place in RMB, which greatly limits uh what should i call it the the speculation as of a few weeks ago at least the highest transaction was actually just 100,000 usd that i could find anyway it's not nothing of course but it's not hundreds of millions that we've seen for a jpeg outside of china yeah
1: it's not nothing and these private blockchains increasingly are going to be actually built by government of course there's already um, a private blockchain that uh, you know, people's bank has released for the digital yuan but one of the major private blockchains that people are experimenting on is built by the you know, civil government in Chengdu.
0: I do want to insert here that even though blockchain sounds sexy and, well, I mean, it is sexy, and the government is putting money into it, it's actually a super small part of the venture ecosystem in China. So of the record-breaking VC and PE that went into Chinese tech this year in 2021, blockchain didn't even account so far for half of a percent. And if you compare it to the largest category this year, which is healthcare, well, it's about 150th of healthcare. Now, let's go into the second topic you guys covered in the report, which I think is also really important the bumpy road ahead of Chinese tech IPOs. I get this question a lot as well as I'm sure you do. What do you think is going to happen with the foreign listings?
1: I think the key risk is uncertainty. There is uncertainty on both sides. Let's take the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, American exchanges. There is uncertainty on whether or not American capital still cares about Chinese companies or will be turned off or have been turned off because of the ongoing diplomatic war right between the two countries. Now, we want to believe that capitalist countries like the United States are going to be more practical than ideological about investment, but there are definitely signs of divestment, not just because the Chinese markets and Chinese tech company valuations are fluctuating like crazy every single day because of all these regulations domestically, but because there is a fear that Chinese companies will not be allowed to grow outside of their own walls. But more importantly, there is uncertainty because right now, Beijing is rolling out all of these changes to what Chinese tech companies can and cannot do, ostensibly, again, for the protection of Chinese internet users and for the protection of national security. And so a lot of people are just holding tight. The DD situation was a big wake-up call. Right? It was a situation where DD did something that the central government determined to a threat to data security and therefore national security. And they got severely punished for it. By the way, they're not done right with the punishment. So all of that uncertainty means that Chinese companies, are, they're just in a holding pattern. They're waiting to see who can list, how they can list, where they can list, and what parts of their business can be listed. What that's going to benefit, I think, is exchanges in this part of the world, especially Hong Kong. Shenzhen and Shanghai are doing extremely well as exchanges. They're going to continue to grow massively, but they are the domestic market. It'll be very interesting to see where the international comes from into Hong Kong to invest in Chinese companies. There's going to be still plenty coming from the United States and Europe. But I think increasingly, we're also going to see Middle Eastern dollars flowing into the Hong Kong stock exchanges to get access to the Chinese domestic market.
0: Yeah, it's also important to mention that Chinese domestic markets are changing as well. As you mentioned, they are very different. They are not Hong Kong. And some international investors still find it challenging to invest. But the government has actually announced a new Beijing-based exchange that will be up and running shortly. It's more of an incremental improvement than a full step function improvement, in my opinion. They're basically making it so that the best companies that were part of an existing over-the-counter exchange can have access to better capital. So I'm with you, Gary, on Hong Kong being an increasingly important alternative, but it's interesting, I thought, that when we were on that London Tech Week panel together and the former head of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange was there, He didn't think so. He thought things would revert back to how they were like before. I think it's possible that, you know, we're all talking about different timelines. But certainly right now in 2021 and probably for most of the next year, it's looking like Hong Kong's getting a bunch of the folks who had to pull their US IPOs. We see Himalaya keep, for example, filing for Hong Kong. Of course, we'll see if that continues. It may frankly depend on what this DD situation yields. So far, leaks keep on saying that the investigation is about to end, but I don't know, it's been a couple months, and all of us have yet to hear any final findings.
1: They effectively had no engineers, no people working on any product improvements. Every single employee seems to be focused on this internal investigation and figuring out um, how to reorient the company and their operations to fit within these new rules.
0: Yeah, to comply because it's an existential crisis. They're losing market share every day they don't get fixed and their competitors are raising money. T3, which is backed by state-owned automakers, just raised 1.3 billion dollars 2 weeks ago while DD is still stuck in this quagmire. What a nightmare. But let's step back for a moment. So earlier when we were talking about IPOs, You mentioned briefly that there might be some risk for Chinese companies as they expand abroad. That actually, I think, is one of the most central trends of this year. Pretty much every Chinese company I talk to, no matter what they're doing, whether it's gaming or SaaS or e-commerce, all of them are expanding abroad. And that's what I'm busy working on these days, actually, helping these companies strategize and putting together investment syndicates. You mentioned, though, in the report that some are downplaying their Chinese origins to expand, specifically in Southeast Asia. I think
1: part of it is to get under the radar of geopolitical tensions. But part of it is also just in the countries that these Chinese companies are investing in, acquiring companies and and trying to grow their footprint around the world. There is anti-Chinese sentiment, and this is long-rooted. Right, So I think downplaying, in some ways, it's probably a smart move by most of these big companies. Chinese companies over the last several years, led by Alibaba and Tencent, have been moving aggressively into Southeast Asia, both through investment and just direct acquisition. Alibaba did that with Lazada. JD has invested in Gojek. Right, that has now merged was in the process of merging with with Toko, and then Tencent invested in C Group. So the Chinese tech grasp across the Southeast Asia unicorns and giants is already pretty well established. But there's still a huge amount of opportunity because we are talking about a part of the world, Southeast Asia, that has. Uh, way above GDP growth compared to the rest of the world average. And we're talking another 600 million people, rapidly growing internet users, a surprisingly young population versus China's actually aging population. And so China definitely sees opportunity there. They see Southeast Asia as kind of China was 10, 15 years ago.
0: Especially when you look at some of the stats that you have provided here in the report, like e-commerce CAGR of 24% from 2020 to 2025. That's just the overall market. If you're the market leader, you're definitely growing much, much higher than that. Just for comparison, China is only at about 11% for the same period, so less than half, because it's obviously much more mature, being the largest in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. And traditionally, Southeast Asia, or at least some of the major operating powers in Southeast Asia, have been American allies. But now it's really about potentially having to choose between American political ideology versus the opportunities of joining the Chinese economic sphere of influence. And I think if these countries are practical, if it really comes down to it, I think the U.S. is going to lose out in most of the Southeast Asian countries over the next uh, generation.
0: Ooh, that's a really interesting topic, but I'm not knowledgeable enough to respond. So let's just say I have no opinion. I do have an opinion on the next section though, which is what you guys actually asked me to comment on. And that's the section on shifting demographics and underserved user segments. So basically to really simplify the story of the last decade or near decade is a rise of the rural Chinese consumer. Not the folks living in a Beijing, Shanghai, or Hangzhou, but in the 600 or so lower tier cities most people have never heard of, even many people in China. But now that China is at 1 billion mobile internet users, and even most of rural China is online now, 70% in fact, where to look for growth? Well, one group is users aged 60 and above, making up the so-called silver economy the internet penetration within that group is just 42 percent and so you're hearing all these stories about internet companies making special editions of their apps simplified with larger fonts for senior citizens and getting millions of new users onboarded this segment by the way also spends more than average so 2.3 times the average internet user according to a 2017 survey it's a real market. It's not just seniors though, there's also the Xi economy catering to females. Females in China are becoming both more educated and also staying single for longer periods of time and they're having less kids. So that means they have different needs from prior generations and could use different products and services. You've probably heard about the aging demographic crisis in China. I actually tweeted the other day, a joke I saw on the internet about China's speed. China has nearly halved its number of annual new births in the last five years, a feat that other countries like Japan took 40 years to do. China did it in five. So it's not good news. Now China does still have over 1.4 billion people, so it's still going to be a very large market, maybe the biggest market for a very long time, but it's really clear that there's going to be a huge demographic shift and people are just leading very different lives compared to 20 years ago. People care a lot more about gender equality. They care a lot about health. They aren't blindly chasing brands, but choosing fashion and cosmetics that highlight their personal taste. They care about impact on the environment so green consumption is a thing. But okay, not to throw you for a loop here. While I did say just a few minutes ago that it's not all about the rural consumer, it still kinda is. That's because even though a majority of the users are in rural China are now online, it doesn't mean they're using all the same services as their wealthier countrymen just yet. Maybe everyone is watching videos on their phone no matter where they're in China, Fewer in rural areas are using ride-hailing, and far fewer are using the internet for financial services. And even within highly penetrated opportunities like e-commerce, there's still new business models that are emerging, like community group buying that we did an episode on before. That's just more appropriate for less developed places in China, where the infrastructure and spending habits are still different. That's why, by the way, I stole the saying from my friend Ron Tao, and I wrote an op-ed earlier this year that the next China is China, because it kinda is. Okay, so I rambled on quite a bit about the underserved markets. Now let's switch gears and talk about the final section of the report, which is this thing that is related to the whole direct-to-consumer or DTC brand boom in China. It's called private domain traffic. So loyal TechBuzz listeners, you have definitely heard of this term before. We defined it for you in our episode on Perfect Diary, which is a cosmetics brand that went public last year. But since you're our guest today, Gary, why don't you go ahead and define it for us? Instead of
1: defining it, because it's actually shockingly difficult to define, I want to illustrate it. I think for a lot of your Western listeners, it'd be people who haven't been to China and used WeChat in China. I'm not talking about the version of WeChat that we can all download on our phones outside of China, but used WeChat in China. If you haven't done that, I don't think you really understand how all-encompassing WeChat actually is. This might sound like an exaggeration, but it's not really. You can have a phone with only WeChat on. You don't have to have anything else on your phone or on your person to be able to survive in China. You could live within one app and be completely satisfied and have access to pretty much everything in life. That is private domain traffic right, for a company, an individual corporation within a single channel, they will be able to have one-on-one relationship, direct relationship with a user and be able to serve all of that user's needs through single channels. That is very unique. It's not something that really exists in the United States or in any other Western country that I've seen. So that this type of private domain traffic and corporate growth because of private domain traffic is actually hard to understand outside of China. Okay, if we take an e-commerce business in the United States, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business, so many technologies have to be part of that business stack. You need to acquire users. And so you might start off with a website. So you need to have a URL and you need to be on, I don't know, Google Clouds to serve you or whatever. You could build something on Squarespace. You need to then buy advertising to acquire users. Once users come on board, and they start shopping, and they decide that they have to purchase, then you are using some kind of a commerce stack, right? And then there's a payment system that could be different. And then once somebody has already bought something, then you've collected their email and your communication with them is generally through email. And that is pretty much as simple as the commerce stack can get. But with e-commerce businesses in China, all they have to be on is WeChat, user acquisition, the shopping experience, payments, even logistics and delivery, and then the circular cyclical communication to draw users back, the publishing of content so that you can get from content to commerce, everything is through a single channel, is through a single app, a single platform. And that is why the private domain traffic businesses in China can grow at the immense speeds that they do. It's not just the size of the population. It's the fact that there is centralized, standardized technology stacks that can be fully deployed within days for a brand new business to get up to scale.
0: Got it. I really like how you explained that. I mean, I generally say it's just a private communications channel, but really you bring up a good point that it's a fully integrated stack. So the entire virtual sloop can happen within one platform. Wow. When you think about it that way, it really is quite different. It's not that cheap, of course, and it does take a lot of operations, but nowadays, a lot more brands want more control over their customers, and they don't want to build on top of these centralized platforms like Alibaba. So they're doing a lot more on WeChat. In our episode on Perfect Diary from last year, actually, I think that they were already running something like 15% of their orders off of WeChat. Now, that company hasn't actually done particularly well this year, but I don't think that means private domain traffic itself is broken. I do agree with you in that WeChat is really this core digital infrastructure that just accelerates business building. Now, Gary, can you think of a company outside of China that is close to building something like this? Or do you think that because of regulatory reasons or maybe ecosystem characteristics, that it's probably just going to be WeChat in all the world.
1: I haven't seen it. And by the way, WeChat as it is today might be different in two years because of these anti-monopoly regulations in China. WeChat would not be able to exist in the United States and it would not be able to exist in Europe. It would have been broken up way before it reached this stage.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to imagine someone building WeChat from scratch today. Even in China, it's... I think like a right time, right place sort of thing. Anyway, Gary, I think we're running out of time. So if there is one last thought you'd want to leave everyone with, one thing to focus on, what would it
1: It would have to be regulation because the shifting sand is going to change everything. And so all of those other things that we touched on, they could all be either irrelevant or even more relevant than we're making out to be right now because of the changing regulatory environment. And also the regulation uh, impacts not only the domestic market, but it really impacts the global marketplace as well. Let's not forget how many international companies have huge holdings within China. China is no longer just an island nation, closed off economic bubble. This idea of decoupling seems completely ridiculous to me. People who actually consider that it's possible because China is just way too connected to the global financial ecosystem. And so all of these changes that are happening in the domestic market, it's going to affect the world.
0: Yeah, China is definitely not trying to decouple economically. But in a few key technologies or supply chains, maybe, I do think it wants to be self-sufficient. But you're right, that's not decoupling. Or if it is, it's very, very selective and very limited.
1: Not even, and I would even say it's not self-sufficient. I think China just doesn't want to be reliant because the issue With semiconductors, as an example, is that they are completely reliant on American IP.
0: Okay, that's a good distinction. Back to your point about financial markets. Maybe everyone has a very short memory, but just a few weeks ago, it seemed like the entire world was having a meltdown over Evergrande. The Chinese real estate developer, that's not a particularly compelling example of decoupling, right? Okay, final question for you, Gary. If you had more time, what would you have put into the report?
1: We actually have a lot in the report. The version of the report that you and I have been speaking about throughout this podcast is the one that's available to everyone. It's about 50 pages. It has a lot of insight in it. But there is another version of it that it's about 140 pages. It is a paid version. It's mostly for corporate subscribers, but individuals can actually go and buy this version of the report as well. And it goes far deeper into the trends that we're seeing, into the companies that are involved. By the way, when you buy it, you also get access to a bunch of webinars, that we are going to be hosting with access to Chinese tech experts and industry insiders. But I would say this, even considering this pro report, if we had more time, one thing I would want to understand more is what all of these changes mean for individuals in China. right? And I think that those are some human interest stories that if we had more time, and I know that our newsroom are chasing some of those right now, we would want to share with the world.
0: Gary, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you to your team that did such an excellent job. And I'm very much looking forward to next year's SCMP, China Internet Report. Everyone, go download it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. And don't forget to write us that review. Have any questions? Email us at RUI at TechBuzzChina.com. We really enjoyed putting this together and we're always open to any comments or suggestions. You can find us on Twitter at ThePanDaily, at TechBuzzChina, and my personal Twitter account is spelled R-U-I-M-A. Pandaily.com is an English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. Our producers are Bryce Ye and Kaiser Kuo. Thank you for listening.